Welcome to the Upper Room Community Church Podcast. Wherever you are in your journey, we hope that this message will help you grow in your faith and provide practical ways to strengthen your relationships. To find out more, visit us at upperroom.ca. As I mentioned to you uh, earlier, we are in um, a series on life on purpose. And uh, for me, as I was thinking about it this week, um, I, this May will mark my sort of 10th year in pastoral ministry. Um, I spent the 10 years before that uh, working in business. And the transition for me from doing like marketing and advertising to, to being in church ministry was, um, there were a lot of things that I wasn't uh, prepared for, things that would change. Like we were suddenly praying in meetings. That was sort of hard to get used to. It's like, oh, we can do this uh, here. Um, in my cube at work over the years, I was surrounded by a lot of swearing now there's less. I think I'm the one who swears the most now in our office, so that was a change. Um, but I think the thing I was like least prepared for was, well, one of them was I was going to have to preach every weekend. So I called my dad, who had, is, had been a pastor for like 30 years, and I said, hey, did you ever uh, worry that you weren't going to have anything to say? And he says, only for the first five years. <laughs> Thank you. He's a left brain engineer. He just, he doesn't, he's not just the left brain going, oh, you asked a question, I'll give you the answer. Um, but probably the part that I wasn't, I was least prepared for was how much fear would come into my life or I'd become more aware of it. Like I went to a lot of marketing conferences before and we would have strategic planning meetings and no meeting ever began with, you know what guys, the biggest obstacle standing between us and the market share we want to achieve this year is fear. And then we'd all, have, we'd all share. But like, that just never happened. I don't remember ever being afraid of anything. And yet, getting into pastoral ministry, I started to feel like I was afraid of all kinds of things. It was actually really strange for me to understand why, why am I worried. But I, I was worried. I was worried I wouldn't have anything to say. I was worried I would screw up the church and somehow drive it into the ground. We were a young church then, only three years in. And I didn't know what I was doing. Um, I was afraid of messing up people's lives when they come to you for advice or input. And, you know, it's not, I don't, I don't think it's a good thing, but sometimes when you're, when you're a, a church leader, people sort of expect that you're going to save them in some way. And I was clearly aware that, like, I can't save myself. Like, I don't know, how, do, how am I going to know? And people would come with problems and things I had never been through before. And I'm thinking, I don't know. Like, what, and what if I tell them the wrong thing? Or what if I just disappoint them? What if, what if they walk away from God because of me? Those were, like, present fears. I'd like to tell you those have gone away, but they haven't in one sense. Um, I was afraid of things I didn't know that 10 years later I would find out and go, idiot, like how did you not see that at the time? That was probably the deepest fear I had because I knew I didn't know everything. And so I knew one day I was going to figure out something that I should have figured out 10 years earlier and somebody or something or community or myself would have suffered because of it. I was afraid that somehow my family would, you know, suffer because of it, because I had talked to all kinds of people who had grown up as uh, children of missionaries or children of pastors or whatever, and who hated it and hated the church and everything. And so there's all that fear that came in with it. And what I realized was that fear was this sort of um, unseen uh, motivator or influencer in so many of my decisions. I'd be afraid to say something I knew I needed to say because somebody might reject me or take it the wrong way. I'd be afraid to take a risk for, you know, it failing. Um, I'd be afraid to not because, you know, to pass up, up, up an opportunity because maybe this was something I was supposed to do. 
And so it became actually a, a great influencer in the way that I did my life. And here's the thing, you know, that's my story, but I, what I've realized in walking alongside, move this to the back pocket, I always forget whether it's back pocket or front pocket, because try the back pocket. I realized in walking alongside many people, many of you in your, your own journey, whose story is different than mine, that actually I'm not alone, that fear is an unseen, uh, often unconscious influencer over so many of the decisions that we make. That in fact, instead of being people who are purpose-driven in our lives, driven by a purpose and making decisions in line with that sense of purpose, we are people that are often driven instead by fear. We have fear that motivates the relationship choices we make. And so we go into a relationship with a group of friends or with a person because we're afraid of being alone. We don't say what needs to be said in the relationships that we're in. We're afraid to rock the boat because we're afraid of rejection. We become people and do things and say things that otherwise we normally wouldn't have because we fear being marginalized or ostracized or looked at funny. Fear motivates often our relationship decisions. Fear can sometimes motivate our career decisions, our school choices, or our choices not to do school or whatever, like what if I don't make enough money? A fear of not having enough can motivate a lot of what we do. Some of us have stayed far too long in jobs and careers that were literally killing us because we were afraid of not getting a paycheck. We were afraid of what would be on the other side of that risk. Fear motivates often the things that we think about and the values that we have in the way that we do our work and what we choose to do or not do. That often underneath something that we're angry about or upset about or really obsessed with is a fear. We fear of not being able to get a good review or not being able to have somebody's approval. Or we fear of being surpassed or getting old or out of date in whatever line of work that we have. Health issues that come into our lives produce a whole other sets of fear and so we make decisions whether we're obsessed about working out or food or whatever because we're afraid of what we might look like or afraid of what might happen to our bodies. Or we stress eat because we're afraid of something else. And that also affects our bodies. And then also when it comes to faith and our life with God, many of us are operating out of fear. Many of us are afraid to trust God and say, okay, God, I'll, I'll let you guide the purposes for my life because what if he asks something crazy of me that I don't want to do? Many of us are afraid of the idea of surrender because like what? Like you give your whole life to God, no questions asked. That's a, that's a fearful thing to do. Many of us are afraid to trust God again because the last time we did or the last time we trusted someone who represented God to us, they failed us. And so what we don't realize is we're actually not open to God because we're afraid of getting hurt or getting hurt again. And in that sense, what's motivating our lives is not a sense of purpose or call, but fear. The greatest risk in all of this, you know, in being people whose decisions in life to do things or not things, to not do things, to say things or not say things, to go in this direction or not, to take that step or not, is that we would actually miss out on what Jesus called life to the full. One of the things he said when he came, he said, I, the reason I have come is to give you life and life to the full. And so the greatest risk in being people who are motivated by and operate out of fear is that we actually just miss out on the life we were meant to have. The good news about it is you're not alone. I'm not alone in this. Not even just in this room. 
If you read the scriptures and the story of God's people from the beginning, fear has always been this thing that has been battling for uh, influence over people's lives instead of a sense of calling and purpose. We've been working our way through the Gospel of Matthew, which is one of the biographies of Jesus that was written by one of the eyewitnesses of Jesus' life. And our premise through this whole series is that the purpose that you and I have in life is offered to us in this thing called the kingdom. The kingdom being this way of life that Jesus invited his followers into. Not to leave where they were and go to some other land or worship some other, um, you know, monarch or empire, but where they were in the middle of their situation under the rule of Rome to do life differently, to do life according to the kingdom, which is the realm or the ways of doing life the way God sees it. It was the life on purpose that he was offering them. And we've been taking, this is the eighth week now, that we've been kind of wrapping, peeling the layers on, well, what is the kingdom and what does it mean to live a life like that? And interestingly, if you read the, the account of the disciples, they were slow to come around to believe all of this. It took them a while. But as they began to hear the things Jesus was saying and watch the things Jesus was doing and actually, most importantly, see the kind of man that he was, that there was an authenticity and a vulnerability about him that they didn't see in their religious leaders. He was like no one they had ever met before. And not just what he said and what he did, but who he was as a person. And so they came to believe there's this point in the story where they finally say, you know what? You're the one. You are the Messiah. You are the Son of God. And they started to believe, yes, this is what my life could be like. As he was saying, follow me, follow me. They said, yes, we want to do it. They had come to believe, and, and they had come to believe that life to the full was truly found in him. They believed what he said. They had started to try to live life like he was living. They were excited about the fact that he seemed to want to not start a new religion, but end religion altogether. And they were starting to believe in the ways that he was pointing out all of the brokenness and fallenness and emptiness and inadequacy of religion. And they were like, yes, 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 we've always felt this and now we know why. And then they were also hoping that he would get rid of Rome and give them their political and ethnic and religious freedom back. They had come to believe. And then their worst fears came true. See, while Jesus was starting to teach and talk, the message of God coming to undo or end religion wasn't just heard by their ears, it was heard by the religious leaders who also had a lot of fear because they had a lot to lose, right? If Jesus is coming in and saying, hey, the power brokers of religion who are profiting from it financially, profiting from it socially, profiting from it so supposedly spiritually, that God doesn't actually view them as representatives of him, and they better ask themselves whether they're even going to be in the kingdom of heaven? They had a lot to lose. And so while some people were receiving Jesus' offer of purpose as good news, these guys were saying this is bad news. And so what you'll notice, all these interactions that Jesus has with the religious leaders, first of all, they were just trying to discredit him. If they could show that he was a uh, you know, a false teacher or a, a sham or a hypocrite, then somehow people would stop, but they couldn't. Every time they tried, he exposed them, and they started looking worse and worse, and he started looking better and better. So then they tried to just silence him, to just confront him and say, we have authority to tell you to be quiet, and you need to stop talking like this. But he would just move around, 
So wherever he was, they would go, he would move somewhere else. And so they couldn't shut him down. So finally they come to the point that say, the only way to deal with this is to kill him. And so they have him arrested, falsely accused, tried, beaten, whipped, mocked, crucified. And in that sense, it was the disciples' worst fears come true. Because when you have come to the point that you have put your hope entirely in something or someone that you believe is everything, and they fail you, there's no worse moment in life. Someone once said it like this, the loneliest moment in life is when you've discovered something that you feel was the ultimate, and it lets you down. It's the loneliest moment in life. And so they did really what probably we all would do. They ran. They hid. They were actually afraid for their own lives because they thought, wait, if they could get to Jesus, like they must have thought they'd seen Jesus do these incredible miraculous things. They probably thought, well, he's invincible. And yet they saw him be very mortal. He bled when he was cut and he died. And they watched it happen. They thought, well, if they can get to him, they can get to us. And they know us because we've been with him. So they fled and they left. It was probably the most, not just fear, but despair. Not just fear for their lives, but the worst had come true. All of their hopes and dreams and sense of purpose completely dashed to pieces. It wasn't like they could go back to life as normal because life had changed completely. There was no going back. And yet there was nowhere to go, and so they hid. Except for, I mean, that was the men. God loved the women, right? They weren't hiding. <laughs> it says that the women on the third day, so Thursday night was when Jesus was arrested. Friday was the day, or Thursday night and into the night he was tried. Friday he was crucified. Saturday was the Sabbath, so they couldn't do anything. He had been buried on the Friday. And it says Sunday morning the women went to the tomb. That's what it says in Matthew 28. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for the angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes were white as snow. Imagine the disciples later just kicking themselves that they never saw it. This is one of the reasons you know the New Testament accounts are true. Because nobody who was trying to make up a story would ever have women as eyewitnesses. Women weren't even allowed to give testimony in court in those days. And yet all four gospel accounts have the same story that it was the women who saw him first. If you were trying to craft a religion to get people, mostly men, in the first century to believe you, you would not start the story like this. That's just a little aside. Going to the tomb, roll back the stone. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, do not be afraid. For I know you are looking for Jesus who is crucified. He is not here. He has risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, he is risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. Then he said to them, do not be afraid. Go tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. Just when it seemed like the worst had come true for them, 
a world-altering event, as someone said, the event in history, which is the hinge on which all of history is turned. They see the risen Jesus. Three times it says in this account, two times somebody said to them, don't be afraid. The third time it says they were running, filled with fear and joy at the same time. And the message that they were told was, there's an empty grave, but don't be afraid. Right? They did not know what to think about the empty grave. Like, it was so confusing for them. Nowhere in their mind was this ever part of the story. So everything that happened, we, you know, years later look back and go, yay, empty grave. They were like, what? What? We saw him dead, buried, and put in here. And now what's going on? Did, did people steal it? Are they desecrating the body? What's going on? And so they're told, there's an empty grave, but don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. And then the angel said, and Jesus said to them, this is what I told you would happen. Now go tell my brothers. It's like, you know, the most purposeful thing that anyone had ever said to them. The most purposeful mission they had ever had in life in those few sentences. Go tell my brothers. I'm not dead. I'm alive. And suddenly it says they were filled with purpose. And I love this. It says they were running, filled with fear and joy at the same time to go find the disciples. And sure enough, they find them and they go to Galilee. And the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. This time Jesus says to them, don't be afraid. There's an empty grave. You don't have to be afraid because there's an empty grave. This is what the empty grave now means. No more fear. And you're like, well, where did he say that? He said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Full stop. Let's just pause there in that sentence. What is he saying? I'm the man. I am the man. They thought that the authority that religion had and the authority that Rome had, had gotten the better of Jesus. Nowhere in their wildest dreams did they think, they thought, okay, hopefully he'll overthrow religion, hopefully he'll overthrow Rome. They never thought he would overthrow death itself. And so that's why he's standing there, someone they had seen arrested, tortured, killed, buried, and they're having breakfast with him. And he says, all authority in heaven and earth does not belong to religion, does not belong to Rome, and does not even belong to death itself. It belongs to me. You don't need to be afraid anymore. There's an empty grave. Therefore, he says, go. And the word go is better translated as you go. In other words, everywhere you go, whatever you're doing, as you go in your life, tell everyone about this. This hope that you had that somehow in me was new life and life on purpose, you had no idea just how new the life would be. Jesus' resurrected body 
was the final witness to them that everything else he had said was true. Everything they had come to believe about their life and about God was, was doing in the world, that God was actually making this world new, was standing there in front of them in the flesh, and they believed it. They understood it finally. The resurrection became proof to them that everything Jesus had said and taught was true. And that God was making all things new in a way that they could have never imagined. See, they thought, the Jewish people all believed in resurrection. But they believed that resurrection would happen at the very, 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 very end of things. They never believed it would happen to one person first. And when it happened to Jesus first, what it told them was, new life begins now. Not someday, one day when you get to heaven. The new age begins now with my resurrected body. Which is why when they went everywhere telling people about Jesus, and he says, he says, teach, like baptize them and teach them. What was that about? He was saying, hey, go tell everyone that life is found in me. As you are a disciple, as you are a follower, invite other people to follow. They're not following you, they're following me. So baptize them in my name, not your name, and invite them to live life with you as you follow me. That was what he sent them out to do. But do you know how they began that story everywhere they went? It says all the way through the book of Acts, they told them about the resurrection of Jesus. The whole story of new life and life on purpose for them began with the resurrection. Because it told them everything that he said was true. And God is making all things new in a way we could have never imagined. So there's nothing left to fear. Don't be afraid. There's an empty grave. And so these same disciples who couldn't even stand by him during his trial, most of whom were killed for their faith. Peter, who denied him three times, was crucified upside down because he refused to stop telling people about Jesus who had been crucified and was raised to life. How do you explain that change except something world-altering that happened to them? This became the proof, the witness for them. It drove them past their fears to say, we don't need to be afraid anymore. Because even death is not the end. Even if they take our lives, it's not the end. So we don't have to worry anymore what people think about us. We don't have to worry about the conventions we're breaking. We don't have to worry about steps of faith that we might take, about what's going to happen to our family or what's going to happen to our bodies or whether we'll have enough money in the end. They were not afraid anymore. Because Jesus says there's an empty grave. So don't be afraid. So now, you can go and do what I taught you. You can love your enemies. Even if you're afraid that by loving them, they'll take advantage of you and kill you. Because that's what they did to me. And I'm standing in front of you. Now you can go and use whatever riches and power and influence you have in the service of other people. Because you don't have to worry, is there going to be anything left for me? God's going to bring it back around in a way that you could never imagine, so you can give your life away. Remember that thing he told them that sounds so poetic and cryptic at the same time? Whoever wants to keep their life will lose it. Whoever lo loses their life for me will find it. There he was, standing in front of them, having lost his life and found it again new. And they go, oh, you mean even our actual lives? Everything changed for them. 
The kingdom came alive for them when they saw the risen Christ. Because it meant everything he told them to do, they didn't need to be afraid anymore. Because otherwise, up to that point, it was a total upside-down kingdom. They're like, well, what if we do this? What if we go out of our way to love our enemies and they take advantage of us? What if we go to forgive that person who sinned against us and we keep forgiving them and we keep forgiving them? Who will look after us in the end? What if we give our wealth away? What if we give our time away? What if we spend our whole lives for this kingdom and it gets used up? Will there be any left? What if we risk all of these things and give them up for you? What's going to happen in the end? The resurrection told them, hey, God has a resolution and a way of paying you back that you could never even begin to conceive of. So don't be afraid to let it go. Do you see how the whole, the whole, their whole sense of purpose in life changed with the resurrection? Without the resurrection, they would have never lived it out, and you and I would not be here. That's what it means to be a disciple who lives life on purpose. For us, one of the ways that we've seen this as a community play out, you know, not just in our community, in our own lives, but like in the things that we're involved in, this thing of human trafficking, some of the money that we're raising for to help with court support, um, that's helping girls who are going to testify against their accusers because it's so hard to land a conviction in human trafficking cases. So court support allows volunteers of people to go as sort of bodyguards to take them to the court, to be with them, to be in the room um, when they're having to face you know, a defense lawyer or face their former trafficker or pimp and to actually be a part of that. One of the reasons we can get involved in that, and I'll tell you the greatest cost, at least for me so far in this, is it messes with your heart. I remember being in court support one day, and there's a girl giving her testimony, and the defense lawyer is sitting like six feet from me just trying to rip her to shreds. It was all I could do to not jump over that thing and just fill him. I was so angry. I was listening to one of, one of the bands, that, or one of the rappers that Kate says the kids are really into. The guy, actually, unfortunately, he got killed at the age of 20, but the most unfortunate part is now his music's even more popular. And when I listened to the lyrics of his songs... I was going to vomit. It's like pornography. It's like violence against women. If this guy wasn't a rapper, he'd be a trafficker. It's the same values, and yet he's number one. These are number one Billboard hit songs, and I thought, what hope do we have trying to support these kids to fight human trafficking when the rest of the next generation is filling their ears and their minds with all of this trash that's actually propagating and perpetuating all of the values that keep this thing going? What hope do we have? I had to say to myself, well, there's an empty grave. You know, Jesus is going to come one day and sort this out. And so everything we do now is preparing for that. The reason we do it now is we say there is hope. We shout in the wind because there's hope. We help one girl even though hundreds more are coming into the industry, even though we're helping one out because we say there's hope, there's an empty grave, there's a resolution coming that we can't see yet, but it is coming. Our friend Lizette, who works in Guinea, and some of you had a chance to go there. It's in the middle of, you know, it's one of the poorest countries uh, in the world, and it shouldn't be, because it actually has the second largest reserve of bauxite in the world, other than Australia. So that country should be rich. All they need is a government who's willing to spend the time and money to invest, to build up the industry, to attract mining companies, and to not steal the profits when the miners come. It just takes government, good government. But they won't, because they'd rather just take the money that they have, they sell their power 
to other, like electricity to other countries around them, and the country remains poor. But in the middle of this like broken place, we're driving on these roads, and like there's a guy carrying gun accompanying us out of the airport and everything like that. Um, it's like a different kind of airport security. It's like you get to have someone with a gun walk with you rather than walk people who have the guns. Like it was like, okay, this is how it works here. And there's an election going on because there's riots in the street because there's 28 parties running for office and the whole country's upside down. 10 million people. And we're driving these roads and there's just poverty everywhere. And we go into this center and it's literally like you guys have been there. It's literally like there's light shining on this place. It's this little beacon of hope in the middle of a desperately broken situation where 40, 50 kids, as Lizette said, are fatter than any kids on the street because they eat well here. You go in there and they get their meds and they have their shelter and they have their clothing and they have, you know, even though there's 30, you know, the, the ratio is like 10 kids to one parent, when Lazar comes in, they all start saying, Papa, Vanny, Papa, Vanny, Papa's coming. And these 20 kids run to this one guy and he's their dad. And they have his wife, Faith, and they, they run this place and we got to stay on site there. And they're calling out for you from 6.30 in the morning to come play with them. But it is a place of hope. And, it's, and she says, yeah, this is this light. And people look at it and go, why are you doing this? And we tell them about Jesus. Is there a point? Is it hopeless when the whole country, like is that one place going to fix the country? No, it's not. But why are they doing it? Because in Jesus' name, we have hope because he's coming back one day. There's an empty grave. So we don't need to be afraid to give everything we have to this now. Do you get it? It's only because of this. What we see in the world around us doesn't tell us there's hope. It's the empty grave that we go back to over and over and say, God is making all things new. So in Jesus' name, we're going to try to make this little place, this little corner, this little postal code new. And our friends Wade and Kara, the Kennedys who are in Central Asia, they went over there to start a business so that they could build up the economy because so many men in the country are leaving to go to Russia to work because there's no good work in their country. And so what happens is they marry someone here and they leave that family and they go and marry someone there. And so they got two or three wives and they're not home that often and it keeps them away in a place that's basically like, you know, Vegas or mining towns or whatever where they're drinking a lot and they're away from their family. And so, so many kids are being raised without parents. And the, so they said, we need jobs in this country. You can go tell them, hey, Jesus died on the cross. You can go to heaven one day. Good. How's that going to fix today? Well, because in Jesus' name, we're actually starting a business so that you can get work so that in Jesus' name we can bring hope. And so they run this business that employs about 80 people. And the way they do business is a witness. They say, we don't take bribes to take contracts. And one of Wade's partners was like, well, you're never going to run a business here if you don't take bribes. That's not how it works. He says, just trust me. And so they lost the biggest contract that they needed five years ago when it really would have turned their business because they didn't offer as much money as someone else was bribing them. That contract they lost, it came back six months later. They said, you know what? Those guys didn't service us well. We know you guys do things the right way. Can we sign up with you? And this has happened over and over and over again. Don't be afraid to take a risk and say, we're not going to take a bribe. Don't be afraid to do business differently. And they send their kids to Tajik schools, even though, you know, a lot of expats send their kids to international schools because of education or whatever, but waiting care of like, well, we want our kids to love the people here. That's why we came here. So we want them to go to school with them as well. That's a risk. But don't be afraid. There's an empty grave. God has a resolution coming to this that we have not seen yet. And so, friends, those are sort of, you know, larger scale stories of what's going on that we're a part of. This is our, we can own that, right? That's not just something they're doing. That's our story. Those are our people. This is part of what it means to be the body of Christ and say, yeah, we're doing that. 
but it's also meant to inspire you and I in the places where we live, in the place where you work, in the place where you go to school, in the relationships that you're in. They say, I'm not going to do things out of fear anymore. I want a purpose-driven life, not a fear-driven life. I'm not going to be afraid to trust Jesus. I don't know what it is for some of you. For some of you, you're afraid to trust him or you're afraid to trust him again. (laughs) But don't be afraid. There's an empty grave. For some of you, it's about taking a risk with your friends or your circle or in a career path, leaving the place you're in, staying in the place you're in. Sometimes faith means we go. Sometimes faith means we stay. God will honor decisions we make out of faith, but we don't want to live out of fear. You know what I love about it? This is, right, this is wherever you go, right? So it's, this is the words of Jesus to us. is saying, hey, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Not your boss, not the president of your country, not the person who seems to be the most influential in your circle. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to Jesus. So as you go, wherever you go. You know what I love about it? It says the women were running, filled with joy and fear. They still had fear, but joy was stronger. It kept them running. The 11 disciples are on the mountain. They are looking at the risen Christ, and it says some of them doubted. Really? What else do you need to see? He was dead. You saw him buried. Now you're looking at him. They're touching his hands. They're touching his face, and some doubted. But you know what? They still went and told everyone, even though they doubted. I love that because I'm still filled with fear, and I still have doubts. (laughs) Moving forward in your purpose in life and taking risk isn't about getting rid of fear and doubt altogether. Fear and doubt are a part of faith. In the face of fear, in the face of doubt, hope is stronger, joy is stronger, our faith is stronger. So don't wait till that's gone from your life, because it won't. What would it mean to be people who are running full of joy and still have fear? What does it mean to be people who doubt and still go tell everyone? That somewhere in that fear and doubt, the risen Christ saying, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. There's an empty grave. I'm going to pray, and then uh, Kurt and the band are going to come and lead us in a final song. Jesus, we thank you that you can be trusted. Like we fail each other, we fail you, but you never fail. Others may leave us alone, hang us out to dry, but you said, I'm with you to the end of the age. I am with you. Through your Holy Spirit, we know you are with us. And so even now, Lord, breathe faith into our hearts to be able to trust you to do the things that you call us to do, even though we have fear, even though we have doubt, that we would be people running to do what you've called us to do. Because the joy in us is stronger than the fear that would hold us down. And so we gladly worship you this morning for who you are and what you've done.